registered dietitian, holistic cannabis practitioner, and master of nutrition science. Welcome to my podcast, Nutrition Rewired, where I share cutting-edge, practical advice to improve your health and debunk myths to help you rewire the way you think about nutrition and wellness. So hi, Cindy. It's so wonderful to have you on, a fellow registered dietitian. Yeah, thanks for having me, Erin. Happy to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, kind of how you got into this field. I know in your bio, your bio kind of hyped me up a little bit. I was like feeling like really excited for the work that you're doing. And, um, you know, it seems like you've gone through your own journey with endometriosis and now you're here helping other women, which I think is really how a lot of us get to the place that we get, especially as dietitians, is our own kind of health journey. Yeah, absolutely. So, and you're so right about that. I think a lot of healthcare professionals enter that profession because of a personal of a personal story. So that definitely does apply to me. Um, so I, I do have endometriosis myself, and I have gone through some of the typical management options like, you know, birth control, I have had surgery uh, back in 2018. So I have tried a couple of those sort of conventional uh, management options for endometriosis. And I have found that diet and lifestyle have really been the the best, you know, management options for me personally. Um, Naturally, that's not going to apply to every single person. But there was a point in my life where I just my, my symptoms were so severe. They were so debilitating, like it affected every aspect of my life. I was severely depressed in a time of my life where I should have been the most happiest because I was newly married and um, I was moving into my master's degree and there was just so many good things happening, but I was just so distraught and destroyed because of how severe my symptoms got. And I kind of just decided like enough is enough. I have to like nutrition is so impactful for so many chronic conditions, right? And we have a ton of research to support this. I'm like, why, why couldn't this apply to endometriosis? (laughs) And I started doing my own research. I started making impactful changes. I'll be very honest and transparent and say like at the time I didn't really know what I was doing. So I definitely, definitely can relate to those people in this space who kind of hop on Google and then just cut out that long expansive list of foods that are, you know, thought to be no-nos um, on an endo diet. And anyway, that that's a whole other story as well, my experience with that. But, you know, what we know about diet and lifestyle and, and its impacts on things like adrenal function and hormone balance and gut health, I mean, there's no way that these things can't impact, you know, the symptoms, symptoms related to endometriosis. So, um, I kind of went down that path myself for for managing my symptoms and it was incredible just how effective it can be. And so when I entered my master's degree, my master of applied nutrition, I knew at some point that I would want to start a private practice in this space just because I think this is such important information to bring to other people who are struggling with symptoms of endometriosis. And that's really kind of what drove me to start my private practice and 
uh, to doing what I'm doing today. I think that answered your question. It definitely (laughs) answered it. And you tied in some really awesome things that I want to come back to at some points in this episode. And um, I appreciate you sharing your story. And, you know, I I think it's, it's really powerful. And like you said, it it allows you to connect with people and they can relate with you more as your clients. And that's, that's a huge part of the healing process as we know. I totally agree. And uh, I've had, the large majority of my clients make a comment to me, like, you know, I'm you're, you know, what I'm experiencing, Mm -hmm. you have lived what I am experiencing. And you know, that's, there's so much value to that. So as much as I hate that I can relate, it, it definitely does. It definitely does help make that working relationship a lot, I guess, a lot more comfortable. Absolutely. And you mentioned too, how pretty much everything can come back to diet and, and so forth diet, connecting to everything, how it can make an impact. And I don't know if this happens to you, but as a dietitian, and the more, you know, like anytime someone tells me they have any sort of symptom or condition, I'm constantly thinking like, Oh my gosh, what could they do from a dietary perspective? And it's just kind of how my brain is wired nowadays. There's nothing that diet couldn't at least help or support. And I think that that's really cool because there is something we have that is in our control that can benefit our health. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, as dietitians, we are like, it is our professional responsibility to continue our our training and keep up with the science. And I, I think I, like, I have to admit, I have a bad habit of of going down a a bit of a rabbit hole. If you've ever listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been a guest on, because there's just so many ways that different aspects of diet impact the different systems of the body, like the adrenals, like the gut health, like the thyroid function. So I, I do struggle a little bit to simplify those answers because there's just so much we can do with diet and lifestyle. So I'm hopeful I will I will make sense <laughs> and I'll give you, and I'll get, I'll give you good answers. To, I'm sure you'll, you'll do great the themes in the podcast. <laughs> you'll do great. So yeah. let's start with, the, I just make myself laugh. <laughs> that's important. My boyfriend said that to me the other day. He's like, I don't think I would need to be around for you to be happy because you laugh at your yourself like all the time. <laughs> I'm like, that's not true. You make that's me laugh. Awesome. Um, that's but awesome. so, so endometriosis, like, what is the very quick description of what it is, how it's diagnosed? What are some of the symptoms? Mm-hmm. So it's this condition where a tissue that is similar, but not the same as that, which lines the uterus, the endometrium grows in the abdomen and other parts of the body. So at this point, it's been found in almost every, I think actually at this point in every organ of the body, um, it does have similar, like it does respond to similar um, alterations and, and changes in the hormones as the endometrium. So like when we menstruate, we like we bleed, right? And so the, the endometrial like tissue has, it, it, it responds to that uh, hormonal stimulus that happens around that time. So that tissue also bleeds. Uh, but the problem is that it doesn't have anywhere to go. So it forms this scar tissue in the abdomen. And that can, you know, cause various organs to adhere together. Um, It can contribute to infertility, you know, severe debilitating pain, and a long, seemingly endless list of other symptoms. In terms of how it's diagnosed, um, currently the gold standard is diagnostic laparoscopy. So it is a surgery, although there are 
specialists in the space of endometriosis, like um, Dr. Matthew Leonardi, who are so advanced in their ability to read ultrasounds, like these these specialized ultrasounds, that they are able to diagnose more advanced advanced excuse me stages of endometriosis with um, with this, this very detailed ultrasound. So, but not everybody is trained in this. Um, you know, somebody who doesn't have this special specialized training likely would miss some, some endometrial like tissue on ultrasound. Um, but for the most part, actually going in and having the surgery, removing some of that tissue, excising some of that tissue, and then, um, having it biopsied is, is the gold standard for, for a diagnosis. Okay. And in terms of symptoms, like I, I'm very familiar with the digestive symptoms associated with Mm -hmm. um, endometriosis, any sort of bloating or, you know, changes in bowel movements, things like that. What would you add in addition to some of those more obvious ones? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is such a great question. So I already kind of alluded to this. So um, but 50% of all infertility cases is related to endometriosis or caused by endometriosis. And then 30% of people within the endo community will have trouble conceiving. So infertility is a big one, naturally debilitating pain, anything that you would like characteristically think of as an estrogen dominant symptom is pretty common as well with endometriosis. So heavy, clotty bleeding, spotting before, after the period, those are really, really common mood changes before the period, very severe PMS, trouble sleeping, uh, headaches. Then you'll also, um, one thing I always am, I'm very mindful of mentioning too, when I'm asked this question, are the indirect sort of mental health consequences as well of living with endometriosis? So, you know, calling into calling in sick to work or school every month on repeat, like this definitely takes a toll on somebody, right? Um, so sleep quality is often affected. Like I can't even tell you how many times I wake up in the middle of the night at like three, three, four o'clock because my cramps just won't let me sleep. And so we know as healthcare professionals, you know, as, as dietitians, just how important sleep quality is to managing cravings and blood sugars and mood and, you know, the list goes on. Um, and then, yeah, your, your comment about the, the GI symptoms. So, um, there are so many ways that endometriosis causes digestive, uh, symptoms like GI symptoms. We, we know that people with endo are at increased risk of things like SIBO for a number of reasons, right? Whether that's low stomach acid production, because, you know, you're not getting in enough protein in your diet or you're not getting in enough magnesium or your, your dietary patterns are super inconsistent. Uh, so things like that. Um, and said use, right? Like N said use or, or prescription pain relievers are very bad. Like we know that they're notoriously bad for uh, decreasing stomach acid levels and causing some potentially causing some inflammation along the along the GI tract, which will also impact uh, digestion and, and symptoms that may may come from that. Now, I do want to make a comment here, like if you are somebody with endometriosis listening to this, and you are heavily reliant on pain relief, I don't want this to be something that you have to feel guilty about. There are ways to support yourself while taking NSAIDs, because, you know, 
I get it. I've been there. You're just in such debilitating pain that there's no way around avoiding taking NSAIDs. So I'm always mindful to, to mention that as well. Um, I, I see a lot of like low pancreatic uh, enzyme output too in the endo population. So I struggle to find research on this, but I suspect it's probably related to inflammation because we know that chronic inflammation, you know, it will slow digestion. It will um, impact our ability to produce uh, hormones at adequate uh, adequate levels. So there's just so much, like, as you can tell, it's, it's, it's so complicated and it, there's just so many moving pieces at play. So, um, but I think we touched on the bulk of those, of those yeah. symptoms. Yeah. Those are great. And I would, I would pay you back on to the, um, the risk factors for digestive issues, right? So you mentioned that the treatment would be um, you know, surgically, or even the diagnosis would be surgically going in and removing those, would you call it a lesion? Would that be the correct terminology or the tissue? Um, and yeah, like I, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's okay. So, so going in and doing that surgery in the area where your digestive system is right. I would imagine could cause a lot of GI issues too, because you're then you could have some structural issues. Absolutely. Yeah. And we know that surgery is a risk factor for things like SIBO as well for uh, definitely impacting motility and things like this. So you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and then my scientific brain, I was just, I was just doing a lot of like writing on specific strains of bacteria in the gut and inflammation and immune function. And I was, there was one specific, I even have it like right here. It was, it was showing an analysis of a culture, um, from lymph nodes, liver and spleen revealed that the presence of the enterococcus bacteria, um, actually traveled to the, the nearby organs and triggered an autoimmune response. So I, I thought that was interesting. So when you, you said that, I, I'm thinking like, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's heading over to the pancreas and we can, maybe we can segue into gut bacteria and its relation to endometriosis. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm open to just discussion on this. I'm just so curious. I mean, when I talk about any sort of hormone um, disruptions or when we talk about PCOS or, um, you know, other hormone imbalances, it's, it's always like, okay, is it the chicken or the egg type of situation? Like mm. I, from the research that I've done on this, which is not even, you know, touching that, the, the mark on what you've done, but in terms of risk factors for how someone, you know, is susceptible to getting endometriosis, right? So I know there's a genetic component, but would you say that it's possible that someone having poor gut health and having significantly higher levels of more inflammatory bacteria could cause them to, to get endometriosis? Or would you say this is really more of a genetic based thing in terms of the, the origin of how the person, you know, ended up where they are? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I'm, I'm skeptical or maybe skeptical is not the right word. I'm hesitant to answer that question, like, you know, in a very direct fashion because we don't have that information. But naturally what we know about the connection between the gut and how endometriosis proliferates, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, right? Because sure. we do know that the gut heavily impacts the way our immune system functions. You know, the B cells, the natural killer cells, the T cells, which all have a role. There's 
tons of research on this and how they function and how their function is affected in people with endometriosis. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. And, you know, I did ask uh, an endometriosis surgeon uh, who I had from the UK on an Instagram live. I asked him this question. I said, like, I know we don't have the answer to this question, but what is your personal theory about how uh, like endometriosis comes to be? And he did make a comment in, in, in that live about, you know, the gut microbiome and, and modifications in the immune system. And uh, there, was, there was a lot of other really interesting things he mentioned, but he definitely did uh, seem to think that there hmm. could be some connection there. Um, so, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to say probably yes right because of what we know and and there again there is research i'm repeating myself a little bit here but there is research about those specific immune cells and how their function is disrupted in endo and that's how endometriosis essentially proliferates right so Mm -hmm. we have these cells of the immune system that have these specific jobs that they're supposed to do like they they're alerted to something that isn't supposed to be there but their function is only let's say you know i'm just going to for sake of simplicity, let's say they only function at about a 75% capacity. So they're only able to clear away, you know, 75% of that endometrial like tissue that's not meant to be. So the remaining 25% is able to establish uh, itself, you know, uh, establish a blood supply and then continue to grow and proliferate. So I think I kind of did circle back to an answer to that question. I think probably yes. I love that. And we'll, we'll just put a TBD on it because I mean, with the gut microbiome, I think there is so much that we don't know. And it's a difficult thing to research because even with COVID, you know, we're looking at it, people are saying, Oh, the people with these outcomes had less severity of symptoms. It's like, well, is that because they had COVID or didn't, you know, there's so much that we, we still need to know about it. We know what the gut does. We know how important it is. Um, I, I think we just, we all want more specifics on like, okay, what exactly do I have to do? And unfortunately, we, we don't necessarily have that right now for a lot of things. Um, but there's a lot that we can do. And, you know, the way that you describe this condition, um, it's almost as if, okay, so we're treating this like an autoimmune disease. Would you say that that's accurate? There are definitely autoimmune components of endo for sure. Okay. Yeah. And then we also know that people with endo are also predisposed, you know, at at a higher percentage to autoimmune conditions as well. Yeah. Sure. Like Hashimoto's, I've I've seen some, some research on that as well, but Mm -hmm. when you, when you're looking at a client and, and what is your main goal with them as a dietitian? like what are some of the main things that you're trying to accomplish? I love the mental health aspect of it. So I'd love how you can, if you could tie that in of how you would address that. And, and, you know, it seems like these people are going through, um, you know, debilitating things in their day-to-day life. And then also from a dietary perspective, you mentioned inflammation. So I'd imagine your, your overall response is like, I need to reduce their overall inflammatory load in the body, balance their hormones. And then again, yeah. How, like what, where do you go? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Aaron. I, I think you also, if I'm not mistaken, practice from the functional medicine side. So you know, functionally medicine driven professionals, we're always looking at root cause approaches, right? So I mean, if the mental health aspect is driven by the fact that you're in pain all the time, and you can't go to work or school, then yeah, we're going to look at ways that we can bring down that pain, right? That I'm not going to, you know, necessarily 
tailor your diet or provide you with a supplement protocol that's going to, you know, uh, of things that are precursors to neurotransmitters that are going to help you feel a lot better. Like we're not going to do that. We're going to target the the root, right? We're going to say, okay, well, is it the pain? Is it the pain, the the constant chronic pain that's making you feel this way? Yes. Okay. Let's audit the omega six to three ratio. Let's take a look what, at what your adrenals and thyroid are doing. I don't know if you do hair tissue testing, but I've recently grown. I don't do it, Sorry, but you I like am like, say something. I just like, am, I, I, it's funny that you brought it up because I, I know other practitioners that use it and I'm thinking about adding it to my practice because I've heard wonderful things. So I don't use it. So I would love to hear more about that. I love it because, I mean, it's taken me years of just studying my hair tissue because at first I definitely was very overwhelmed. Like it gives you a ton of information, but the reason I brought it up is because it tells you what's going on inside your cells. And so Mm -hmm. I've seen really impactful changes happening when we address like the adrenal ratio, for example, or the thyroid ratio. So these ratios indicating that somebody's adrenals are really struggling or that their thyroid, like we're not able to get nutrition and energy to power the thyroid effectively. So these things I find are so impactful. So we know the adrenals produce cortisol. And then we know if cortisol is too high or too low, this are these are gonna this is gonna be a source of inflammation for people with endo. And I don't think I've had a single person come to me with like a beautifully functioning adrenal gland. I mean, when you're chronically inflamed, when you're under eating, when you're getting really poor sleep, like naturally your adrenals are gonna be affected, right? So I love the the hair tissue hair tissue testing for that. Um and then the thyroid, right? We know that if the thyroid isn't functioning optimally, that's also going to increase the severity of your symptoms. It's also going to, uh, you know, make it harder for you to get good quality sleep. So I really like it for that because, I mean, I don't know that you can get any more at the root of something than to look at the inside of your cells. So I love that. Um, I love it for looking at things like copper, right? If the copper is elevated, then you're probably not able to excrete uh, estrogen properly. And we know that estrogen, we know that endometriosis is an estrogen dependent condition. So that's another thing I'll look at. I know I'm bouncing around a little bit. No, this is great. People can take notes. This is excellent. (laughs) Anyway, I started with the omega-6 to 3 ratio. Then I moved into supporting the adrenal, supporting the thyroid, um, And then what was I just talking about now? Oh yeah, the copper and estrogen. So this is another area of focus, right? When I'm, when I'm working with my clients, we want to make sure you're excreting that excess estrogen properly. It's actually not terrible if you're producing a lot of estrogen, like I'm an extremely estrogen dominant person. What's more important is, are you clearing it through properly? Are you excreting it through your stools? Are you having regular bowel movements? And then this ultimately circles back to the gut health piece, right? So are you having regular bowel movements? Are they feeling complete? Um, and then are you methylating properly, right? Because I know you you do like Dutch uh, testing, so you know the importance of methylation. Um, and again, unfortunately, in the endo population, a lot of us are predisposed to genetic mutations that make it a lot harder for us to methylate optimally, right? I, I would probably say if I had to put a number on it, 90% of the people I've done this testing with are not methylating properly. And, and just to kind of simplify this for your listeners, um, this is the second stage of how estrogen is cleared through the liver. And so if you're not methylating, you're essentially going to be, you're going to have a buildup of 
very inflammatory estrogen breakdown products. And this is a huge driver of pain and inflammation that I see in endo. So that's another thing I'm looking at. I mean, I'm looking at lifestyle. Um, Something that I hear a lot of is like, I just don't feel hungry, right? Because naturally when you're feeling sick all the time and you know, your, your body adjusts to that. You, you stop feeling hungry and then you're not, you know, motivated to have something every three to four hours. So setting that foundation, making sure we have some kind of nutrition coming in every three to four hours so we can start to establish better blood sugar control. That's something that I'm looking at. Um, heavy metals are huge. So that's another thing I use the hair tissue for. We know that things like um, cadmium, nickel, uh, aluminum, like we know these heavy metals, mercury, we know that they can intensify, um, abdominal discomfort. We know that they can intensify neurological symptoms. So this would circle back into that sort of mental health domain. Um, we know that they can make like things like food sensitivities worse. So there's a lot to explore there as well. Um, so yeah, I think that kind of summarizes the things I would look at quite it's quite a lot it is yeah it's a seems like I'm picturing in my head I'm a very visual person this just like web of different things and you know Mm -hmm. kind of checking all the boxes right you start with the essentials always but you know you have to kind of figure out where is what is contributing the most to this person's symptom and what is going to improve their quality of life right because you're saying I'm not going to focus on something giving them this rigid diet plan or something like that if they are already overly stressed or something like that. So I I love your approach and, you know, your clients are, I'm sure you've heard this hopefully plenty of times, but very lucky to have you um, on their team because I can only imagine what it's like, you know, going through that alone. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's very sweet. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff. I, I mean, I'd have to sit down and think about it, but things like aromatization, right. We know that there's higher aromatase activity in people with endo, um, and again, to, to simplify that for your listeners, this is that uh, enzyme that converts more of our androgens like testosterone into more estrogen, right? So we have more of this activity. It's like people with endo, we just, everything, everything is just piling up on us. There's just so many, so many opportunities for something to cause inflammation. Um, yeah, there, there's so much more that you would look at for sure. So it's, it's a lot. Oh, I love that you do testing because I feel like, you know, in conventional medicine, which can be so wonderful, you know, there's these things that we're missing, right? So yes, you're testing estradiol, maybe like one or two forms of estrogen, but we're not looking at the metabolites. And that's such a a disadvantage for people, right? Because their, their doctor might see things and say, Oh, that looks fine. Your TSH is fine, but we're not digging deeper. And um, obviously you need those things to, to kind of help figure out where the root cause of maybe your estrogen dominance is coming from or which pathways you need to support. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with you. And, you know, you can have perfectly, optimal (laughs) labs based on sort of like, you know, traditional or conventional Western medicine. Um, But you can still have a long list of those symptoms that may indicate like uh, thyroid dysfunction or adrenal dysfunction or anyway, the list goes on. So yeah, totally agree with you. I think functional medicine testing is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. 
you mentioned constipation too, or sorry, not, you didn't mention constipation. That's where I went in my head of what, um, I wanted to talk about, but (laughs) that's just how my brain works. But you talked about not eating enough too. And, and, you know, I, I see this a lot with my clients, especially if they're bloated or they have SIBO or things like that. You don't really want to eat, but we have to remind ourselves that like when we eat, we are excreting like all of the waste and toxins out of our stool and keeping things moving and detoxifying estrogen. And so even on the days where you feel like you shouldn't eat or couldn't eat or don't want to eat, like we, that's how we, we have the momentum. Your digestive system is a tube. If you don't put anything in the tube, nothing's going to come out. So what would your tips be for people that don't like, they're just not hungry or, you know, simple meals or anything? Like, is there anything that you've noticed has been really helpful for your clients? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I'll say is if you're in, you know, just a really bad flare, like borderline passing out or vomiting or just an extreme pain that you really can't move a whole lot, you know, don't be thinking about putting food in your body. Like I've been there and there's nothing anybody could say to me that would get me to eat at that time. Cause to be honest with you, it's probably going to come up. So that aside, right. You really can't do much in a flare, but if you're just kind of, you know, sitting with mild to moderate pain, um, or maybe you're not in pain and this is in other parts of your cycle. The one thing I find is like, you know, just to make those goals, not so overwhelming. So something small. And usually with my clients, I'll, I'll sit down and map out what is that easy thing that you may, you know, have kicking around in your pantry or what, what can you have frozen? That would be easy to pull out like frozen vegetables or, um, I think you're in the States, right, Erin? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So here we have uh, like a, a grocery here in Canada. We have like a, a grocery brand that's, they create like frozen meals and things like that, but they do tend to be quite a bit better in terms of like sugar, sodium, fat content. So they're actually relatively decent if it's something that you need to rely on um, like quick. So I'll sometimes recommend those to my Canadian clients. Um, but really it's ultimately just, creating a plan to have something every three to four hours. And once you're consistent with that, so typically my recommendation is there is some kind of protein and uh, fiber minimum, right? So maybe that's a piece of fruit and a hard boiled egg, or maybe that's a piece of cheese and some, you know, whole grain crackers. Uh, Maybe that's some vegetables and hummus, like some kind of protein fiber combination, a handful of nuts or seeds, like just something small consistently so we can start building that blood sugar consistency basically um and what i have found is that you know once we start doing that consistently then there does there does tend to be an opportunity to begin to add to that and make it a bit more substantial Mm -hmm. um and then you know naturally things like making bigger batches of food when you are feeling well and freezing it that's always easy and helpful, um, you know, thing, things that are maybe a little bit easier on, on the digestive tract. So things in liquid form like smoothies or, um, stew, uh, soups or stews, things like this, again, just creating bigger batches and, uh, um, you know, like packaging them, freezing them for, for later use when maybe you're not feeling so good. I'm trying to think what else. But that's really, I think, the foundation because 
yeah, I mean, we have to, we have to create some kind of consistency in the blood sugar. So it doesn't have to be anything big. And I'm always very clear about that because I don't want anybody feeling overwhelmed, but just something like whatever, ultimately you can handle whatever you can manage. Um, that's what we start with. Those are great tips. And I love that you mentioned some of the frozen meals that are, you know, full meals that you just would pop in the microwave or the oven, because I think we need to revisit those. I mean, there are some really great quality ones out there. You know, also here in the U.S., we actually had a a neighbor accidentally get their groceries delivered to us and ended up giving them to us. And so I don't typically spend the money on frozen meals just because I follow a budget and they're, they're a little bit more expensive for me, but they, they delivered a, a frozen meal to me and I looked at it and I said, this is, this is great. It was just chicken and rice and cauliflower and squash and pesto, very simple ingredients, you know? And so there are some great things out there too. If, um, you know, if people have the ability to, to financially support that. Um, but yeah, I always keep frozen veggies and shrimp and stuff like that in the fridge. And that's always a good tip for, for my clients as well to try to just have something to, to balance out, like you said, blood sugar and get consistent meals in. Now, yeah, I, I want to segue into specifics of food because with any sort of condition, you're always going to Google and say, what, what food should I avoid um, you know, with this condition? And there's always a list. You know, If I have SIBO, I should be avoiding this. If I have PCOS, I'm not supposed to eat gluten or dairy or soy. So what are some of the most common food myths you would maybe debunk about endometriosis, if you wouldn't mind? Sure. <clears throat> sure. <laughs> Sorry, that came out all squeaky and weird. Oh my goodness. I, you know, every time I make a comment about these topics or make a post on these topics, I always get somebody who's just, you know, a hero for the cause, but you know, as evidence-based professionals, we, we speak about science, not opinion. Um, dairy removal is one of the most, I think, harmful in my opinion, recommendations for people with endo, even though I do hear a lot of people do really see improvements with removal of dairy products. And that's fine. If you are somebody who comes to me and you're removing dairy and you found that very helpful, that's fine. I'm just going to support you and making sure you're getting in the nutrients we would otherwise get from dairy. Um, so that's not a big deal, but if you're doing this on your own, it's something that, you know, you have to be really careful about because, you know, firstly, dairy is one of the absolute best sources of protein. Um, well, I shouldn't say best, but a really good source of protein. And most dairy products are super accessible and they don't take a lot of time to prepare. Most of them have no prep time. Like if you think about pairing some high quality Greek or skier yogurt with, you know, a good quality granola or some nuts or seeds and some frozen berries, like that's a super easy meal or a super easy breakfast. Like that will literally take you a minute to put together. You know what I mean? So, um, and I think that's really important to acknowledge for people in the community because you are often very fatigued and you are often not feeling very well. So why put that added burden on yourself to prepare something that's going to take you an hour as opposed to reaching for something that's a very nutrient dense food, um, high protein, which side note is one of the most consistent deficiencies I see in my clients, low protein. 
Um, and just to add on top of that, if the protein isn't sufficient in the diet, your immune system is going to struggle. Your digestion is going to struggle. Your adrenals are going to struggle. And again, if you think back to the things I mentioned previously in this podcast, those are all drivers of inflammation. So anyway, there's that. Um, dairy is also a really good uh, source of dietary vitamin D. Not all dairy products, but many are. And North Americans are you know, for the most part across the board, very deficient in vitamin D. I think the statistic is like 80 or 90%. And we 90%. know that vitamin D is super, yeah. And I, so it's crazy. It's so high. So we know that um, vitamin D in particular for people in the endopopulation, it's really important for immune function, really important for fertility, really important for drawing down inflammation. So we really don't want to be deficient in vitamin D. Um and this is something that comes out of like my experience and, and training with the hair tissue, but calcium, right? We know one of calcium's main functions is muscle contraction and clotting. Um, so if you are not getting sufficient calcium in, your cramps may be a lot more intense. You may actually see more blood clots in your in your um, you know in your in your bleeding uh, in your menstrual cycle, right? Um, and compounded with the fact that a lot of people with endo are put on these hormone hormone suppressing uh, medications that also deteriorate the bone right and we know that calcium is super important for bone health um th that's really important to pay attention to getting insufficient calcium right and and dairy is one of the best dietary sources of calcium so um and then again, compound, like, I mean, I can talk endlessly about dairy, but compounded on top of the fact that we see significant magnesium deficiency as well in the North American population. Um, if the, if we're not getting enough calcium from the diet, eventually what is going to happen is it's going to mobilize from the bone. And then, uh, you know, magnesium basically has the opposite effect. So it's for muscle relaxation. Um, and so, with, I think I'm going off on a bit of a tangent now and not making sense, but it's really important to have those two in balance if you want to reduce your, you know, cramping, pain, clotting, things like that. Um, so there's that. There, there's, in my opinion, there's always a hierarchy of how to approach restriction if that's something that you really want to do. So instead of going cold turkey with the dairy, maybe try those sources that are, you know, better tolerated among most people. So uh, maybe lower lactose dairy, fermented dairy, um, like aged cheddar cheeses, Swiss parm, these, you know, tend to be a little bit lower lactose, better tolerated goat or sheep sources is something that you might trial before cutting it out cold turkey. Um, so I think there's always a way around it so that it's not so, yeah, like, so it's not it's like just a cold turkey restriction, if that makes sense. Um, there is a little bit of there is a little bit of research around gluten. So, you know, if you're somebody with endometriosis, you may see a benefit from removing gluten. But the comment I always make here is, what are the sources of the gluten you're getting in in the first place, right? Are you getting in a lot of those white refined sources? Because whether or not you have endometriosis, these things are not going to be good for your health. They're not going to be good for your omega-6 to 3 ratio. So that step that you may take before maybe doing a full gluten removal would be, you know, focusing on the whole food sources, rye, spelt, those sorts of things. Um, sprouted grain, sprout, uh, sprouted grains that contain gluten, for example, are things that you could, you know, focus on. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many myths. I mean, red meat, right? 
Um, we do know that red meat, especially if it's conventionally raised, it is going to be a bit higher in omega-6s based on what it's fed. It also contains saturated fats, which we know can also drive uh, inflammation. And we know that there's a really strong connection between saturated fats, lipopolysaccharides, and the progression of endometriosis. So this is something we need to pay attention to. But do you have to completely remove red meat? Probably not. Um because red meat is still a really beautiful source of protein, zinc, uh, B vitamins, iron, like a lot of the nutrients that fuel the immune system that, um, you know, support healthy blood sugar control. So again, that's another thing that I could probably spend hours talking about. Um, what else, what other kind of myths are there? I mean, like alcohol, alcohol isn't really ideal for anybody I was gonna say I don't feel like anyone should really yeah I mean definitely don't binge drink it that's something that I'm pretty confident you know applying to everybody across the board don't be binge drinking alcohol because you know there's a ton of negative consequences of that on gut health on hormone balance you know on the liver health um but red wine resveratrol in in red wine does have quite a bit of uh, helpful benefits, uh, extending all the way down to specific strains in the gut microbiome. So that's something, if you're going to drink, that's something that you may consider opting for. Um, but then, that, you know, that from that stems that whole conversation about histamine and endo, which maybe we won't, we won't go down that rabbit hole, but that is something we have to, I guess, pay attention to a little bit. Um, I think I'm, I think I addressed the big ones. I don't know. Is there anything else, Erin, that you can think of that I missed? No, I like that. And I like that you, you mentioned that we can pay attention to because it, it, it seems like what you're alluding to is like you have to pay attention to how your body reacts to these things because, as you mentioned, if it's a lactose issue with the dairy, like we can fix that. There are sources of dairy that don't have lactose in them, for example. Um, you know, where, where are we individualizing this? And, and dietary-wise, whether you have endo or don't have endo, it's always individualized, right? And, um, you know, certain people might tolerate something and some people might not. But I think alluding to the research is so important for people to just maybe check the big ones, right? Looking at dairy, looking at gluten, looking at red meat, looking at their total volume and consumption of these things and, and evaluating what makes sense with their lifestyle and where they're at in their healing process. Totally. Yeah. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if you wanted to, you, yeah, you're so right. It, it's always individualized. And I don't know if you wanted to move into a different question, but the one big one that I forgot to mention is soy. <laughs> Oh, I've talked about soy a lot. Yeah, let's talk about that. Well, I won't. I mean, I guess I won't say too, too much, but I don't know. Somewhere, somewhere in the past, soy got a really bad reputation. I think there was something that came out in a prominent journal or something like that. Not even necessarily a medical journal, but um, yeah. And that just kind of swept, you know, the globe and everybody started thinking of soy as the devil. And you know, what we, what we do know about it is it doesn't quite like, so I still get a lot of questions around soy and, and being an estrogen, which is not exactly what it is. But, um, what we do know is that soy, so soy is a, a phytoestrogen. And, and so, um, it has the ability to bind, you know, your, your body's endogenous estrogen receptors, but it's only mildly estrogenic in nature. So what we know is that if you're somebody who's extremely estrogen dominant, like me, if some of your estrogen receptors are bound by this less estrogenic 
phytoestrogen coming from soy, then it's actually going to draw your estrogen down. So it's actually quite beneficial for people who tolerate soy well, who have estrogen dominance. Um, and then the, the opposite is true for somebody who's maybe, you know, uh, postmenopausal or, or premenopausal and their estrogen levels are starting to drop, um, less, fewer of your estrogen receptors are likely being bound by your body's own endogenous estrogen. And therefore having soy products that can bind to some of those receptors that are maybe not being bound by your body's own, you know, endogenous estrogen may actually drive your estrogen up a little bit and mitigate some of those, uh, pesky symptoms of having your estrogen de decline, right? Like night sweats or, um, like uh, hot flashes or vaginal dryness, right? Or even um, vaginal infections, which we know can be can be uh, driven by estrogen deficiencies. So, um, and there's, I, I've been doing some functional medicine training recently, and there's quite a few beneficial bacterial strains that actually absolutely love soy products. So they'll, mm -hmm. they'll grow and they'll flourish and they'll uh, produce a lot of really helpful anti-inflammatory benefits and uh, they're going to improve digestion. They'll synthesize B vitamins and vitamin K and help with, um, you know, mitigating any kind of dig pesky digestive symptoms that maybe we don't want to see. So there's a lot to be said about soy. Um, I guess the last thing I'll say is naturally you want to be picking those whole food sources. So, sure. you know, tempeh, tofu, um, not so much like the non Fake meat artificial. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not so much that stuff more so, you know, your tofu, your tempeh, your edamame, those would be really good sources to include. Excellent. And, 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 you know, calcium, great source of calcium as well for, especially if people that yep. say they don't tolerate dairy for, for example. So yeah, again, individualized, but, but, um, important that you bring up the research there and what we've seen, because, you know, we can't really demonize one food for everyone often, you know, like you mentioned, there's different stages in a female's life where it might be more or less beneficial. And that, you know, that that's, that's going to be different for each person. Yep. Absolutely. So briefly, I definitely wanted to touch on like birth control and just maybe like a few alternative remedies that maybe you use in your practice for maybe pain would be a good one. Um, I don't, you know, I don't specifically work with a lot of patients who have endometriosis, but I do work with patients who have things like um, rheumatoid arthritis or maybe just, mm -hmm. you know, exercise type everyday pain. And, you know, we'll do things like CBD uh, but yeah, I'd love to hear, I know this is, we only have a few minutes, but just like your quick on um, kind of estrogen um, or progesterone exogenous, um, either in pill form or, you know, some sort of IUD type thing with endometriosis and then any other alternative remedies that you think are important for people to hear about. So I'm not really sure I understand the question about like the, the IUD and birth control, like how exactly do you want me to speak to that? Yeah. So if someone is put on those medications for managing symptoms, mm -hmm. like how, like, do you think that that's necessary for management of symptoms? Do you think it's harmful for them Ooh. to be on it? Because is it masking? Like okay. what's really going on? Cause you know, with types of, um, you know, diagnoses like this, I worry about a disease progressing, but not actually treating the root cause if you're just masking symptoms. Mm. So I'm curious as to how you address that in your practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a huge question mark in the way of some of these hormonal suppressants or 
birth control or IUDs. I mean, this is a really big theme. Like I could speak to this quite, quite a bit as well. Um, many people do see improvements in symptoms with things like birth control or IUD or hormonal suppressants. It's very varied across the board. There's, you know, a hundred percent of people don't see improvements and a hundred percent of people don't see improvements. Like it's just, it's very, there's a big question mark here. Like, I wish I could say more about it. Um, you know, there, there are definitely some things that we can deduce from whether symptoms get better or worse. Um, when you're on something like birth control, and I don't know, Aaron, if you understand this the same way, but when you're on something like, you know, a synthetic combo estradiol and, um, progestin, if your symptoms get worse, like if your pain becomes more severe, I would be inclined to think that you've probably got some estrogen clearance issues because even though the progestin and the synthetic estrogen are kind of taking over production of your body's own, you know, hormone production of estrogen and, and progesterone, um, if that's intensifying your pain, like your, 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 less of it is going through your liver and, and being removed from your body. But I would be inclined to think that that's like a methylation issue or something. So that, that can be really telling. Um, we know that there's this huge relationship between birth control and other hormonal suppressants in the gut health, right? We know there's, there's a mountain of research around leaky gut and not absorbing, you know, key essential vitamins and minerals. So you know, if we need those things, if we use those things as tools to support uh, improvements in symptoms or reducing inflammation or um, supporting the immune system, right, because we know that the bulk of the immune system is located in the gut, well, then inevitably, yeah, I think it's probably doing a bit more harm than good. Um, I do want to, like, mention a, a bit of like a side note, there are ways to be on these medications, you know, that mitigate these risks, of course, right? Because I know a lot of people rely on these, a lot of people in the endo community rely on these. So again, I don't want to be guilt tripping anyone. I don't want to be um, instilling fear in anyone. There are ways to to support your body while you're taking these things. But, you know, if you're kind of, and I've posted on this a number of times, I mean, don't just blindly willy nilly take these things, work with a dietitian, work with somebody who's informed in this space, because you're absolutely right, you could be doing a bit more harm than good, even if your symptoms seem to have improved while you're taking these medications. Um, you know, there, there, there's that whole connection with uh, hormonal birth control and other hormonal suppressants and mental health, right? We know that a lot of people experience severe mental health decline. And when you're already living with a chronic condition, your mental health is probably a bit, you know, a bit um, con- like, like it's a bit rocky. Like, I don't know what words to use here, but it's, it's probably not consistent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that's another thing to consider. Um, with things like the copper IUD, for example, I mean, you, you need to be mindful of copper and how if it's in there for too long, it can actually uh, bring up your serum or tissue copper. And then that could be very problematic for um, actually being able to remove estrogen from the body. And then, you know, somebody who comes off may have extremely elevated copper. Um, and because they're not eating a lot of dairy or because they're not eating a lot of things like eggs because they've read somewhere that that's not good for endo either you're probably not getting in enough retinol and then that will prevent your ability to clear that copper through your body um and therefore you know help your help you to remove that estrogen from the body so 
there's lots to consider when taking hormonal suppressants or birth control or some kind of IUD, lots to consider, but there is a, a right way definitely to, to support your body if you, if you so choose to use these as management options. And then in terms of like natural supports, um, I mean, the thing that I find by far to be the most effective for improving symptoms is consistency in diet. What do you know? <laughs> consistency in diet, <laughs> color, variety, hands down. If you do that, your symptoms should improve. But of course, if you have terrible gut health, you know, if you are chronically constipated, maybe you have SIBO, maybe you have leaky gut, maybe you've got some kind of pathogen that's fueling inflammation that's located in the gut, you have to address that first. The, the um, diet route will help you to achieve that ultimate goal of, of um, improving inflammation. It's just going to take a little bit longer if you don't take like a tailored approach to supporting the gut health and, and supporting improvements in the gut health. Um, and then, so, so that's big. That's very, very big. That's the foundation. And then in terms of supplements, um, the ones that I use probably most often in practice would be things like NAC and acetylcysteine. Um, and there is research specifically in the endo space about NAC and how it can be effective for reducing pain, improving fertility, reducing um, the size of endometriomas, um, things like melatonin also has been studied in the endo population for reducing pain. Um, the one comment I'll make about melatonin is if, if the uh, dose is too high, it can potentially inhibit ovulation. So we just want to be mindful about that, especially if you're trying to conceive or um, we, we don't want to compromise those progesterone levels, right? Because uh, that's really important to have healthy progesterone levels with endo. Things like curcumin, although a lot of people talk about them, and I know there's some research around curcumin and turmeric and, and RA, um, I don't tend to use it a lot just because it's um, it, it can bring down iron levels. Mm. So I think it, it definitely can be effective. Um, it's well studied in, in populations that live with chronic inflammation. So it's definitely something that can be considered. I would probably encourage somebody to use it in something like a golden milk for example, mm. or just use it in your cooking, even though that's not going to be as nearly as concentrated as um, a supplemental form. Um, I like things like um, uh, alpha lipoic acid, also a great inflammation fighter, really good for blood flow. Mm -hmm. um, oh my goodness, like these supports fall into different domains. So really love digestive bitters for supporting stomach acid and digestion. Um, Sometimes I'll use tailored, you know, a probiotic strains in people who need some support with the gut. Um, things like cramp bark is really good, really effective. Ginger is awesome because it's helpful for motility. It's helpful for pain. It's helpful for nausea, um, helpful for gas. So ginger is definitely, definitely on the top of the list there. Um, yeah, I don't know if I answered that question. I'm sure there's a lot more, but... Those are, I think, some of the main ones. Yeah. That's awesome. Those are incredibly helpful. I appreciate you sharing those. And I, I love a lot of those for, especially for digestion and the bitters and bitter foods as well. But I, I really love that you started with diet because that is, even with gut health, no matter what it is, diet and consistency with it is going to be the foundation to whatever you do. Um, that's 
truly what I believe. And then the other stuff is just, you know, really personalized and getting to the root cause. And what's funny, Erin, is usually it's a lot harder to create that consistency with diet and, and make sure you're getting sufficient protein than just pop in a pill, right? But it's oh, going to, yeah. naturally, that's going to be the most, it's going to set you up, right? It's it's the foundation. And I've mentioned a couple of times throughout this podcast recording that, you know, if the protein isn't sufficient, there's so many systems that are going to struggle, your adrenals, your stomach acid. So it really is, it really is the foundation and um, it can make all the difference if there's enough variety, quality, consistency. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But like you said, it's an investment. It's an, an investment in something that is sustainable long-term and that's ultimately, you know, what we want, especially as dietitians. Totally. So yeah. where can people find you? What is the best place to reach out if somebody would like to work with you? Yeah, so on I'm I'm most active on Instagram. So my handle there is endo.fertility.dietitian, spelt with two T's, no C. <laughs> um I do have a website, endometriosisdietitian.ca. Um I do so I, I have a, a program. So if you're looking for some kind of uh like not not so much one-on-one support, but you're looking just to learn a little bit more then there is a, a hands-off program that's available to you for purchase anytime and then um i also have group programming that i just launched so that's lots of fun i'm happy to entertain any questions through dms or um yeah i guess mostly through dms or email that that's uh, all on my instagram page yeah excellent awesome and the most important question of the episode is what is your favorite childhood memory with food? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I probably have a couple. My my parents joke around a lot about the ice cream truck that would roll around the neighborhood. I don't know if you guys have those. In the oh day, yeah. We, I've chased yeah. them down in my, in my day. <laughs> that's so funny. So I had a friend, Rosa, I don't know. I might've been like maybe eight or nine. I don't, maybe even a little bit younger. And I went to ask my parents if I could have an ice cream and they're like, no, we have ice cream at home. And then, um, Rosa's parents ended up buying me an ice cream from the ice cream truck. And then I like strutted towards my parents with my ice cream cone. I'm like, well, Rosa bought me one. <laughs> and there's like a big running joke in the family that, um, that really does kind of exemplify my, my, uh, my attitude quite a bit. I'm, I'm very like, if I want something, <laughs> I'll go get it. Um, even from a young age. So that's, that's the one I'll leave you with. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's such a good story. And it's such a good attitude to have towards life. If, if you don't get it from someone else, you will do it on your own. <laughs> Self-sufficient. Yeah. I respect that. Well, wonderful. Cindy, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your expertise and your story of your own journey. And I hope that people will go follow you. You have such great information with regards to like, even if you don't have endometriosis, I mean, she talks about gut health, she talks about hormones and thyroid and practical tips and recipes and things you can include in your diet. Um, So again, thank you so much and look forward to staying connected and have a wonderful weekend. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for having me, Erin. My pleasure. Bye, Cindy. 
Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. If you are interested in working one-on-one with me, you can go to my website, nutritionrewired.com. We just started the second round of my group coaching program. It's been going amazing, just as the last one has. And I've already had some people who are interested in the next round, which will be starting at the end of March. So if you'd like to have a discovery call with me and potentially get on the wait list, you can also find that application on my website. So thanks again for tuning in. And as always, don't forget to share the health.